Lights, camera, action. Here we are with the dude, Jeff Dowd. Thank you for coming, Jeff. Dude here. The dude is here. How you doing, Charlie? It's great to see you. Great seeing you. Oh, it's absolutely what what a pleasure it is. Um, So, okay. You know, all these years we 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 collide with one another and got to know each other at festivals and at events. And and I I know very little about your your early life and your your growing up and and all of that. Can you uh, uh, give me some uh, some ingredients of uh, of what led to become the the dude that we know today? Well. Your parents, your my family. Parents, my, my, both my father and stepfather are world-renowned economic historians. Right. And so through osmosis alone, I know a little bit about economics and history. Um, and, um, so. Um, and you grew up in Seattle. No, I grew no. up. I grew up. I grew up in, for the most part, I was born in Oakland. Oakland. Where I have a basketball team that's still the world champion and may remain so. Yes. Um, the you're not rooting for the Raptors. Of course, like, uh, no, not no, I'm not. No, really. Okay, no. cool. <laughs> um, and my father taught at Cal, but then he moved to Cornell. So I grew up a lot in Ithaca. And then my parents split up when I was in fifth grade. And oh, I, so you grew up in Ithaca partly? Okay, and up in Cornell. Yeah, through fifth grade. Yeah. yeah. And then when my parents split up, my mother moved to Berkeley, back to Berkeley, for a year, and that's where Dave and Danny Einstein first started calling me the dude uh, when I was in fifth grade. Sixth grade, and uh, my mother remarried my stepfather Paul Sweezy, and, and ended up living in Westchester County in Larchmont, New York. Okay, uh, where a lot of rich people lived. And yes, stuff. Uh, we my mother got deal of the century, but um, for a little house there. But anyhow, the point is that, um, and I was basically a juvenile delinquent type. In my, you know, high school years with all my friends. And um, one guy got busted. A lot of people used to um, borrow cars and, uh, you know, going to New York City and stuff, joyride and stuff. And one guy got busted, and the judge gave him the choice of going to jail or going to the service. So he joined the Marines. And uh, about 150 guys from my high school followed him, including me. I went to the Marine recruiter, but I was only a junior in high school. And he said, come back when you're a senior. I mean, after you graduate, which he mm-hmm. wouldn't have said a year or two later, but it did at that point. And within a week, one of our friends died in Vietnam. And we started getting letters back from all these guys saying we made a huge mistake. Um, and and someone was saying we were on the wrong side. So it was initially U.S. Marines that gave me kind of an anti-war consciousness, even though both my father, my stepfather, and my mother were part of the anti-war movement one way or another, but it was the Marines. And, and then when I was 17, my father, Doug Dowd, had what's called a Fulbright scholarship thing to, as professors, you can take a year off and do some research and right. write and stuff. And so he went to Bologna, Italy, to kind of study the transition from feudalism to capitalism like with the city-states, you know, from Florence and stuff like that. And, and I didn't want to go to Bologna, Italy, and my stepbrother David was living with his father in Ithaca, 
was oh, his mother was Kay was with my father, and they dragged the two of us to Italy in our senior year, which turned out to be phenomenal because we got out of the the bubble of U.S. brainwashing and all that kind of stuff, and we had a there were no English schools in Bologna, but there was a thing called the Linguistico Ugo Fosculo, which is where the the top hundred young women, daughters of the industrialists and the mayors and people like that went. And David and I were there, and we had a tutor named Luca Fontana, who um, was an extraordinary person with several degrees. And, you know, he'd sit there in this old building, and he'd read Allen Ginsberg's Howl to us, and, and oh he was God. friends with the Living Theater, which were pushing the outside of the avant-garde thing. So we ended up traveling around Europe with the Living Theater at the age of 17. I mean, all around Europe. and uh, That's awesome. David and I. And then also, we met the Rolling Stones in Bologna and went on tour with them. And I actually ended up in the studio with them in August in uh, London when they were doing an album. And um, so that year of 17 was a pretty awesome year of, you know, being in Europe. And a lot of time in Italy, a lot of time in France, and an awful lot of time in England. I was staying at Abbey Road with Sean Gervasi, who was my father's TA at Cornell, literally about two blocks from the crosswalk. Oh, you yeah. See. And Very I, cool. I would pass by the Beatles place every day, but I had zero idea it was the Beatles place because they parked the car, cars out back. But I would go to St. John Wood Station and then go over to see the Stones, you know, for the big studio. So it was interesting, but... Um, it was a remarkable time. It was the summer of love and all that kind of stuff. So I'll give you a what, quick... So what year are we at now? 67. Okay. So I'll give you a quick story. So my stepbrother David returns... To, well, we spent some time with Keith and Brian and, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. And he goes back to London, back to Ithaca earlier than me, but he stops in London. And Keith is in southern France. Brian's in Morocco, but he calls Mick Jagger. And... Um, Mick says, hey, David, this is great. Why don't you go and, you know, see if you can get us a couple birds or girls, whatever they called them back in those days, you know, to, to go out with. And David said, Mick, you've got the number one album in the world right now. You've got the number one signal, single, Let's Spend a Night Together. You know, it's the summer of love, you know. I'm just David Bayoukas, you know, 17-year-old kid from Ithaca, New York. I can understand maybe you're in Bologna for a night. You could use a little help, you know, meeting somebody. This is your hometown, Mick. I mean, this is pathetic. The emperor has no clothes. I mean, really, Mick, you know. Uh, you know, you know I mean, give me a break. You know? um, and, and, and Mick cracks up and, you know, and, and, and you know, uh, laughs and says, well, you know, you got me, David, but why don't you just, you know, tell why don't you try it and say, you know, Mick's had a tough week. And according to both of them, they went out and had a good time. But, you know, pathetic Mick. You know, you can't get in a little action with let's spend a night together in your hometown during the summer of love. Crazy. Anyhow, but that's what rock stars do. Anyhow. So this is like, okay, so now you're you're a teenager. This is your high school years, and you're in Italy. and uh, just, just for one just year. Just for one year, and then you come I, back. I go back, and I'm supposed to go to Ithaca High. So now you're coming back to, to Ithaca. As, as a senior. Okay, Ithaca, New York. First time I'm living with my father as a school thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was 
very contentious in high school, but but good. You know, I was battling out with the former Marine history teacher every day. Okay, about Vietnam, and that was good. He liked that. But 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 you know, I'm at the English class, and the English teacher is giving some short shrift thing to the beep beats or something, and she mentions you know Alan Ginsberg in a weird way, and. And I go, well, that's not really right. And she said, well, how would you know? I said, well, I took acid with him two weeks ago in London. You know? And he, you know? So the principal calls me in the next day and goes, you know, I don't know, Jeff, you really need to be here. You know, why don't you just come back and take the final and, you know, go audit classes at Cornell or hang out or something like that, you know? And so that was the end of my high school. That's, so that's how that finished. A few years, a few weeks in the guy, but then I was, you know, off to the race. And basically started hanging out with Cornell anti-war activist people and, Cornell people and, and young women and stuff. I mean, I would have been a freshman. At 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 Cornell. Or anywhere. Or anywhere. But, yeah, I was admitted to Cornell, but I, I didn't go there. I went to this experimental college and then kind of went to Cornell for half a semester. But um, And then where'd you go after that? Well, all these Cornell Ithaca people decided to move for political reasons because they were graduating. Um, and we ended up going to Seattle. Aha, uh-huh. okay, now we Seattle. Left, we left, yes, I got December 6th to arrive in Seattle December 20th, 1969. How do I know that? Because that's in my indictment of the Seattle 7. Yeah. To incite a riot, supposedly, on February 17th, mm-hmm. which is, like, really ridiculous, you know, as if we knew anything of what we were doing at that point. But, um, so, you know, we were in Seattle then, and within... A couple months, we were indicted as the Seattle Seven as the test case for what were 41 other cases that were going to be run by Nixon administration against the anti-war movement. And because did that include at the time, let's say, like Abby Hoffman's group and all that? They were already on trial for the Chicago Seven. The Chicago Seven. That's what I'm saying. And our demonstration was in reaction to the contempts of the Chicago Seven. And, 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 and stuff. And so that's what February 17th was about. There. Mm-hmm. But when you have a conspiracy, and we had two charges crossing state lines inside a riot, which is the Rap Brown Law, which says he let he went into Cambridge, Maryland for one night, gave a speech, there was a riot and went back. We, you know, certainly didn't cross state lines leaving us to get inside a riot, okay? On February 17th, we were clueless of what we were going to do. But anyhow, um, but when you have a conspiracy, which is the other charge, conspiracy to destroy federal property, which happened at the demonstration, you need what's called overt acts. So if we were going to rob a bank, Charlie, you know, gets the gets the getaway car, and I go get some guns, and somebody else walks in there and says, stick them up. Those would be three overt acts. We had 18 overt acts. At every overt act we had, of a so-called conspiracy, radio, TV, and print, People were there covering it, and there were at least 500 people. So we were giving speeches about the war, trying to be covered by the press as much as possible on a daily basis. Um, and that was a conspiracy, really. You know, so, some conspiracy, you know, when you're trying, trying to, to be covered by the press. When you were, no, well, not try. We were covered. Yeah, you know, we were press. on the news every night. Yeah. You, know? you know, that's not exactly a conspiracy. So we were going to win the trial and all that stuff. And we're winning the trial, and. Um, and um, the, um, but you were considered a, a some type of uh, 
of 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 threat in some way, I guess, right? Oh Is yeah, that, no, no, yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no. I mean, you know, the Hoover and the FBI and Mitchell and Nixon and Ehrlichman and Eagle Crow and all these guys were very much trying to do this whole thing, but but basically, as we were discrediting their witnesses about a few days into the trial, we got a mistrial which we didn't want basically giving the prosecution a second chance mm-hmm. after we destroyed their supposed secret spy witness. And then we went back and had a chance to talk about it, And at which point I had a woman from the Seattle Rep design a Nazi flag. You ever seen a Nazi flag in person? Yes. I've never seen one. You have? I think I have at some point, yeah. But not... Sure? No, not, not, probably not a proper one. Well, it's a pretty amazingly powerful symbol. Of course, yeah. And we made a huge one, I don't know, about 10 by 15, because the judge Bolt had an elevated thing. And when I did my thing, Michael Abels and I presented him with this Nazi flag draped on his high-up bench, which got us, you know, top story in two networks and above the fold in the New York Times. I mean, as I accused him of being a good German for you know, going along with the Vietnam War, um, and so um, yeah, that's the kind of stuff we did. We did a lot of, you full, know, full-on protest and and. Uh, well, we did a lot of visual stuff too. I mean, if there was stuff. something called like redlining, which was you know redlining around black communities, so they couldn't get loans for houses and stuff like that, we would go to the Seafrist Bank, big black tower, and have a house on the back of a truck to assemble, you know model house, maybe 10 feet tall, and put it in front of the big black tower of the bank and draw a red line around it, and that would be the visual. So we were always doing, we had, you know, like 38 collectives and stuff, and we were, different ones would do different things every day. And uh, Seattle Liberation Front and all that. So it was a... Um, and this was a this was a whole series of years. So now we're going from '69 to well into the '70s. And into then, the '70s, and then you know I did jail time for six months for contempt of court, which was wonderful, by the way. I must say, a great experience. So you were in jail in, in Seattle? No, I was in jail in, about six or seven different jails. Okay. I was in Seattle, King County Jail. I was in Shelton, where they break everybody down. Uh, I was in McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary. And then in Clearwater work camp. Um, the thing about jail is once we knew we were going to get out, which we didn't know right away, because the judge was through the, said we were, <laughs> the judge, because we were, t- one of the lawyers on our team was a guy named George Fradenberg, who worked for Gravass, Wayne and Moore, which is the biggest Wall Street firm. And they sent George, who was, to, because they didn't like what was Nixon was going on and as a kind of a friend of the court, so to speak, for us. And we're driving, going up in the, in the elevator with the U.S. Marshal and George, and we said, let's waste George tonight in front of the U.S. Marshal in the elevator. And George Bolt, the judge, used that as an excuse that we were going to waste him, that we were going to kill him, as if we would be talking in front of the U.S. Marshal. Right, that you'd be doing that. We'd yeah. Doing that. Yeah. So that kept us from not making bail for a while, but then the Ninth Circuit bailed us out. But... The thing about the jail experience is once we knew kind of we were going to get out, most people who go to jail are in indeterminate sentences, like doing like 5 to 20, 
You don't know till the day you walk what you're going to do. And so jail for, for me was like one for the cuckoo's nest goes to jail. It was like extraordinary, amazing stories and stuff like that. I mean, great, great stories. It's all in the book on the series. but Fantastic. A lot of it, but really amazing stuff. Um, funny, heavy, all kinds of stuff. So it was, it was a, all in all a good experience to have been through that. Been through that and interesting. Look, when most people go to jail... Their crime partners do not come and visit them ever. Really? You know, you did the bank robbery, you're going to go show up and say hi? Yeah. No. no. It was the exact opposite with us. Everybody wanted to come visit us, and they wanted to send us stuff. So from, amongst other things, I had subscriptions to like 15 different newspapers because I would just say, you know, somebody was there from Cleveland, I'd say, give me a subscription to the Cleveland Plain Dealer or something. So, so I had all these different newspapers. So, you know, different people could have their own newspaper every day from their own town and you know, just all kinds of stuff. Um, it was, um, you know, a lot of funny stories. But, um, yeah, so then after that, on the day Nixon, we voted, my girlfriend Kevin, this is a woman, and I went to South America for a year, which was yeah, um, in 72, 73, which was an extraordinary adventure, going to pretty much the whole West Coast, Colombia and Ecuador and Peru and Bolivia and, and Chile like three months and stuff like that. And there's just amazing stories from that in the book and the, and the show. The show, by the way, and the book are called Our Classic Tales to Fuel Our Future, um, subtitled um, How We Can Imagine and Create the Best of Times for All. And um, so we are re-evolving storytelling in a way that... Um, I mean, we're really re-evolving storytelling, using transmedia to tell stories that'll be on multimedia platforms. So um, when you, you know, we'll use all different forms from reenactments, doc stuff, virtual reality, um, poetry, dance, music, and a particular tale, classic tale, um, we'll use various forms to tell. Multimedia it. storytelling. Transmedia. Multimedia Trans is where it appears. So yeah. multimedia is where you're going to appear. Right. You're going to be on YouTube. You're going to be on, you know, various places. That's multimedia. Transmedia is the various forms that you use to... To communicate. To communicate the story. So it's transmedia stuff. And um, it's very exciting. And, um, you know, there'll be a lot of women directing a lot of these things too because you know for all the obvious reasons and um it's um and pretty much a lot of a-list directors and actors are involved because it's rather easy to let's say ask jessica chastain to play my girlfriend sunny you know she can come in for three hours and do it or even you know i can go to somebody like alfonso Caron and say look you're busy for the next six months but could you do an episode next november and would you like to do an English one? Would you like to do Italy? Would you like to do a South American one? Would you like to do a Seattle one? Would you like to do a Neil Young one? What would you like to do? So even the A-list director types or production designers or those people who are often committed for the next six months, we can find an episode, a time that they could do an episode for right. and take a week or two. In the meantime, they can be thinking about it. And that also is a watershed to 
a lot of first-time directors or women who are directing and you know, helping them and stuff like that. So it's the series is, um, which I will be setting up in the next couple months in the book, and um, you know it'll be um, very excited because amongst other things, it's interactive. So to give you an example of that, let's say Kevin and I are in Chile. And we go to a place called Cochamo, which you had to hike into. And we got a boat ride from a little farmer guy where they had no cars, no trucks. They had a couple you know, tractors and Jeeps and stuff like that. But this is where Butch and Sundance went too. Right. And it's all horse riding and stuff. And you can only get out of there going the other way to Puerto Montt on a once a week mail boat. Puerto Montt being the southernmost place in Chile, you can go by car or train before you have to get on a boat or fly to, you know, Tierra del Fuego, okay? Another thousand miles south, but it's the last place. And so as we're coming in on the mailboat, Kevin starts going, look, look, look. And I go, what? She says, look at this, look at the boat. And I go, what? She says, it's the Calypso. Jacques Cousteau is coming back from Antarctica. And we literally pull up next to him in the, in the Puerto Montt Harbor end up going over to see him, and he looks exactly like Jacques Cousteau, Kevin. You know, there he is with the red cap, and Kevin's like, hey. And so we end up spending the day with Jacques Cousteau. Crazy. Who, amongst other things, takes us to lunch and had sea urchin for the first time, which was so pungent and root, flower-like, you could barely eat it. But And so we can tell that story, but on the interactive part, so, so there's the book and there's the series, but you can also interact on the series, too. So, for example, somebody else who might know that Jacques Cousteau also invented the scuba tank, the self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, might tell a scuba story. Or if they're a diver, they might have their own classic tale, which every diver has about you know some dive they did, which ended up being really classic. Al Gore, I run into Sundance, he might take the last paragraph of Jack's book, do it, and put a link to his new movie. Right. Or somebody else might do something else. So it's the interactive nature of the classic tales where people start to share their own stuff, mm-hmm. which makes it very, very exciting and, and also makes the thing a pretty... I mean, this will be a huge, huge, huge series, okay? I mean, you know, zero doubt of that. And, uh, and these classic tales are not something we're speculating about. It's not a script like, gee, we hope it works. These have been told. I've told these at Red Rocks at 10,000 people twice, some of them. I've told them to 20,000 people in Louisville. I've told them tons of college stuff, Lebowski Fests, um, you know, other places, bedrooms where the stories better be really good. You know, and so we know these classic tales more or less work. It doesn't mean we can't, as I'm doing now, get editorial feedback and try them out and do things and improve mm-hmm. upon them, but... It's not speculation whether these stories were. In fact, the book is by popular demand. Everybody's been saying, why aren't you, you know, writing a book about this? Right. And so it became naturally as to evolve that into a series, you know, which is, you know, the, the, you know, makes it really good and all that. So that's kind of one of the main things I'm up to these days. These days, yeah. But for but for years, you were uh, also doing a ton of repping, right? And, and well, what rep- I, yeah, what I was, look, we had... In Seattle, there there was a movie called Hearts and Minds that my friend Bert Schneider produced, and who also did things like Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces and stuff. 
And Bert called me up one day and said, dude, um, I just made this movie. There's an exhibitor screening in Seattle tomorrow for theater people. Right. Why don't you go see it? And I went, and there was this guy named Randy Finley there who's, we wanted to open a bookstore, but he decided to start a little movie theater called The Movie House. And he was at that screening, too. And he said, gee, you're the dude, aren't you? Can't we go out and have coffee afterwards? It's a morning screening. And he was so moved by Hearts and Minds, which did a lot of, it won Academy Award, but did a lot of interviews with various people involved in Vietnam from all sides. Very powerful. And at a time when Gerald Ford, who's just been appointed president for Nixon left, was kind of trying to rewrite the history of the Vietnam War. So it really right. spoke to that. And so Randy said, we got to do something about that. So I said, what if you took out ads or something promoting in your competitor's theater or is this going to play for a week? Mm -hmm. He said, what a great idea. And I said, I could parlay that into a shitload of publicity, you know. And so we did that, and um, Hearts and Minds, which was just supposed to play for a week, played for 17 weeks at his competitor's theater and broke the house record. Wow. And that's how I... What year was that? 1974, probably, mm -hmm. okay. Anyhow, so that's how I started. And, and I ended up working for Randy and... And because we were exhibitors and had theaters, that allowed us, well, all kinds of producers and enlightened studio people and what became the classic division people started doing their test runs with us. Yeah, yeah. Not just test screens, test runs of things like Chariots of Fire and stuff like that. And so I ended up kind of... Were they in terms of tests like... Like secondary runs or first or run, first all first runs. Okay, no, they, they, bef long before Chariots of Fire did anything else, we tested it out or, or you know, Black Stallion or something like that for right. runs, runs. So, so, so for audiences to be as as the test audiences at that theater venue. Not, yeah. no, I'm not talking about a research screen. We did no, that no. too. No, no, I'm no. talking about playing the thing for weeks and months. Right. No, I got and, it. And and then and then that could be copied elsewhere. Right. And so that's what. And so I ended up helping a lot of studio films that needed some help um, as a marketing consultant. To reach to reach an audience. Yeah, Yeah, and various segments of audiences because there were various reasons right. somebody like might like Desperately Seeking Susan for different reasons. Okay? Right. Um, and, and so there were different... So that's what I was doing. And then I moved down here in about 81 or so and, and we did end up repping films as well indie films and I was you know one of the founders of Sundance Institute and then film festival and so um, the the um, you know there was it was exciting time for the indie films at that oh point. yeah uh, and uh, so I, I was doing two things one was consulting on the marketing and kind of co-running it on a lot of studio films with names like Gandhi and War Games and stuff of like course, that. Of course, yeah. And and then big at releases the, at the same time do it because look, it's the, the guys call up about chariots of fire and go, we don't know what to do with this. What would you do with this? You know, that kind of stuff. Okay, um, you know, the head of Warner's, you know, and the producers too and stuff. You know, and, and you consulted on those campaigns, yeah. yeah. Well, more than consulted, I yeah. co-ran co the co-ran the campaign. Yeah, yeah. And, and and so. Um, yeah. You know, um, and so I'm doing two things at once. I'm working these studio things, 
that are own. Look, my metier was working on films with very compelling word of mouth. Right. And usually great reviews and publicity angles. I turned down running various studios and divisions like Paramount and Sony's and stuff like that because I didn't want to work at a place where I'd be working on 18 films a year, of which I was only interested in two of them, maybe, or four of them, you know. And so I was able to work on films that were really good. Right. Whether it's a studio film or a Sundance-type indie film. Sure. So I was doing both things at once throughout the 80s, basically. Uh, and then, uh, you know, got, I got married and we had kids, and that kind of changed some of the equations, as mm -hmm. one can imagine. Oh, yeah. In terms of time and stuff like that. But now I'm um, free to at long last be creative myself. Right. Um, and do the book. I mean, 40 chapters of the book are written, and so it's just all being rewritten now and stuff like that. And I haven't done a damn thing in the last two months because I was in the hospital. Right, and of I course. I had to get a new computer as well. And, and But now I'm back at it. And, um, it's um, very exciting. And, you know, and it's... I mean, we really are real evolving storytelling. You know, and, 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 and this is not something that I'm some genius figured out. It's something that's pretty obvious from looking at the various things people are doing with storytelling, with transmedia, you know, and, and other kinds of storytelling. And now that you have TV series, as opposed to movies, people have a lot more freedom to... To, to, to deliver. And to try all kinds of things and out. try things, yeah. Out, and so, and they really are pushing the envelope on a lot of this stuff. So it's... Um, and so I'm just kind of like looking around and going, oh, yeah, this is kind of obvious. If you have a book, it's going to turn into a series. Why don't you do it, you know, this way and t tell, you know, different ways of telling the story. So it's, you know, it's exciting stuff. I'm also doing another TV series I'm involved in called um, La Serena, the Mermaid, which is uh, about two really strong women, one of them who works for, you know, NOAA, you know, National Oceanographic, you know, you know, atmosphere, and you know, whatever, uh, and the other, but who's, who's actually a mermaid, and it's a really amazing story um, about, with a lot of really classic characters, um, also about, that has to do with, um, a lot of environmental stuff that can save the planet too, so it's it's in that context, and um, and we're about to set that up in the coming weeks. That's really ready to go uh, with a woman named Natalie Page Bentley, and then I have a partnership with a guy named Alex Noe, who I've known for years. We have a thing called Blood, Sweat, and Honey, in which we still rep films, right? Um, which is you know it's 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 a challenging business. Absolutely, especially now, right? Especially now, to um, you know, uh, find proper homes for films and things like that, and and um, that were not produced with a home to start off with, so that they have to get acquired. And you have to there's sell not them. a lot of money there necessarily, and this that the other thing. But you know, but some of the stuff we do narratives and docs, and a lot of docs are pretty extraordinary that that come across our way. 
tough to do certain things with, but really pretty amazing things a lot of people are doing with docs. You know, Absolutely. Um, and so, we're, you know, we're doing that. So that's kind of what my life is in terms of, um, you know, various creative things I'm involved in in various ways, you know. And and the and and then the theme with going uh, every year with supporting the origins of the dude and the Lebowski Fest and all of that stuff. You continue to do that, of course. Well, the Lebowski Fest is you know two guys out of Louisville started this thing up and invited me to come the first or second year. Um, this is not something I make money off of, by the way. Just FYI. Right. Um, right, 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 right. You don't, you don't, you know, it doesn't, it's not a business for you. No, I mean, I will sometimes allow them to pick up the hotel or something like that, but, you know, so I'm not losing money on it, per right. se. Right, 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 right. Except for the time involved, but I'm, you know, um, it's not, but, a, it's not a profit making thing. Yeah. Not whatsoever, okay. And, um, and so, but it's, the Lebowski Fest stuff is pretty amazing as it's kind of grown. They have two nights. The first night, they have a band. Jeff Bridges played recently. I actually got out of the rehab place. I was recovering, learning how to get physical again and walk. For a night, and went there with two people who took me there with a with a walker and a, they a wheelchair. I think I had a walker and a wheelchair. But um, but when Jeff was performing, but but they have a band and then they show the movie. The second night, though, is the extraordinary one in many ways because they do it at a bowling alley. And they always got to pick the biggest bowling alley, which has enough lanes. So when they do it here, they do it down near Fountain Bowl, whatever it's called, near Hermosa or something, not Hermosa, Redonda or someplace like that. And and New York, they do it out in Queens and usually and stuff like that. Yeah. And and, and they have enough lanes. But what happens at the bowling night thing is people come dressed up in costumes. Oh, yeah. And, of course, they come as the dude and Maude and Donnie and, you know, Walter. But they, what gets really surreal and amazing is they come dressed up as lines out of the movie. So there'll be a, a woman with huge bosoms, and 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 all and that. And I go, "What are you?" And she says, "Oh, I'm the." Um, wait a second, I'll just blow the line. Uh, I'm the. Uh, what do you call it? The bosom of the Pacific Ocean, whatever it is, the line in in, in Lebowski. Lebowski, yeah. Yeah. Um, and people come dressed up, ten people as the crime lab. Right. Th- things that are just mentioned for one sentence. People come dressed up as right. the concept. The concept of the, of, of, of a line. Of a line. And 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 totally surreal. Um and amazing and group stuff too. And and uh it's really a pretty extraordinary, surreal experience. None of them, per se, are good bowlers, but it's just like fun bowling. But it's the costume thing and the surreal thing. We went in Seattle. They had it one time. North, I think in Kenmore it's called, on an Indian um, casino. Was at the same place the bowling alley was. And so afterwards, at 2 o'clock when the bowling thing was over, a bunch of people went to the Indian casino. right. Where you had, you know, a couple, few college kids who were trying to, you know, work it, and a couple old guys who were working it, and now all of a sudden, at the, you know, blackjack table, you have Maud, the dude, the bosom of the Pacific Ocean, you know, Wonderful. all sitting at the blackjack table. I mean, it was really surreal, 
experience, you know. So, you know, the Lebowski the, the Fest is, is a tremendous amount of fun. And, um, and the foundation, I mean, I think people have heard the story, but, but the foundation of how the, the story came together and how the— What how story? The, well, with the Coen brothers and you and, and the, the creation of, of, of the characters and all of that and the— well, I, I, I had worked with John Eason on their first film, Blood Simple. Right. Which I helped get money for post and, um, you know, to finish up the post and then help try to find distribution. We got turned down by every distributor three times. Did that also go out through Gramercy or Polygram or no? No, no. Well, let me, let me, yeah, let me yeah, tell, yeah, yeah, tell you the story, yeah. Everybody on film. Mm-hmm. Not on video, not on film. Screening room screenings. But if you watch Blood Simple, which is a very dark movie, in a screening room alone or with two people, people are afraid to laugh at the dark stuff or just don't because it's too dark and weird and funky. Mm -hmm. And so everybody turned it down like three times. I mean, we had played it someplace like Dallas and stuff like that, and we were telling people to see how... And it wasn't until we went to Toronto, the Uptown Theater, and had every distributor that all of a sudden everybody got it. That, oh, okay, this works. People thought, didn't think it would work for women. It does. People, you know, and so the dark comedy stuff worked, and we finally made a deal. It was distributed by Circle Films and all kinds of great people like Renee First and Ben Barinholtz and Chris Zarpas were all working on it. And during that time, though, they hung out with me a lot. And I think... That's where they got the idea. They would be interested to do a couple characters. Walter being the, in any buddy movie, is always a buddy that gets the other buddy in trouble. Okay? Whether it's, you know, Mel Gibson and, you know, being insane in, in, in with Danny Glover and, um, psh, I'm going to quit a show with me, um, Lethal Weapon. Or whatever, you know, you want to jump, I'll jump, you know. Or, you know, Butch and Sunday, it doesn't matter. But Walter's getting the dude in trouble. And, and Joe and Ethan, I think a lot of it is just like riffing off my name. But it was an interesting character to, to do it like that. And they make me a bit more of a pot smoker than I actually am. I don't smoke pot during weekdays because if I was negotiating, I'd give away my daughter's. And then they go, yeah, you know, I throw in my daughters. I mean, I, I can't negotiate where I'm stoned or something like that or do heavy business. Um, but what they did by making the dude a stoner is they liberated him from everyday concerns, which made him be what my friend Phil Cousineau, C-O-U-S-I-N-E-A-U, C-O-U-S-I-N-E-U, philcousineau.net, which I, he's tied for first, most erudite person I've ever met. He's written 29 books. And... Um, great, great books. But we were doing a seminar at Esalen Institute on myth, magic, and movies. And and by popular demand, all these other people at Esalen for various seminars on stuff and yoga-type stuff and stuff, heard I was there. So on Saturday night, we showed Big Lebowski, which we weren't going to do. And so on Sunday morning, I said to Phil, what's the... Because Phil is the inheritor of Joseph Campbell. Joe Campbell, you know, of course, Star Wars, you know, is based a lot on his work and stuff. And Phil did a book with him in a movie. And Joe said, you got to carry on, Phil. 
So I said, what's the mythological significance of the dude? He said, oh, that's easy. He's a holy fool. The original holy fool being St. Francis, the original St. Francis. But the, the jester in the king's court was the one person who told it like it was. A lot of comedians are holy fools, right? And the dude liberated from such things as work and stuff like that is liberated to kind of tell it like it is and 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 in an ironic and fun way. Very gentle and, and all it, of that. And yeah. so that's kind of the basis of of, of that character. Um, they give, you know, rather short shrift to things like the Seattle 7, which is, I mean, they don't even deal with it. You know, they, they, you know me and six other guys or something like that. It's like, but... But, but the point is that they, uh, you know, they, now why does everybody like this movie that much? Interesting question. You know, I mean, really interesting question. Um, regardless of what it did at first, that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, that well, it is here nor there that it didn't, you know, take off. Um, it was uh, released by Polygram Gramercy, yeah, right? Yeah, and and. But I was actually at the New York premiere. I remember going to it. Really, I was there. It was and they did the the party at the uh, Chelsea Piers bowling alley. Um, was I there for that? It was fantastic. No, I went to so much where, fun. Where was the New York premiere? Who was there? Oh, every person I, I can there, imagine I that was the, the of course the you know Joel and Ethan and Paul Newman and. Different, you know, it was like crazy. There were all kinds of folks that oh, no, showed I wasn't, up. I wasn't there at the Paul Newman one. Okay, yeah. I wasn't there, but I did another thing where you did it at that Chelsea Beer Boy. You know. Outrageous. Yeah. They had the long neck, you know, the beers, and they did, you know, they gave out, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. And yeah, no, I, mean, I, I still, I think I still have something from that, that, that evening. Yeah, so it was, it was you know, so, um, but why it took off is interesting. Look, the thing about Lebowski, which is, you know, fanatical, it's beyond cult following. Cult would be too small a word for it, okay? True. Um, let me really throw something at you. Tons of Republicans and other people, it's often the movie of choice for holidays now. Because when you have a big holiday get-together at Christmas or Thanksgiving, what happens? There's 15 family members there. People are drinking. It may get nasty. Put on Big Lebowski, and they're all going to have fun. They're all going to have a laugh. And and so a lot of even Republicans are watching Big Lebowski at Thanksgiving and Christmas time. I mean, this is like, you know, I know this because, like, you know, people get all this feedback, uh, let alone other people. So it's... Uh, uh, and, you know, like any of the Coen Brothers movies, they populate it with great actors, of course. Of course. And, and, and um, Buscemi, I mean, it was amazing. And, um, you know, and um, one of the things about Lebowski, by the way, Teddy who hasn't seen it and is thinking about seeing it, a lot of people haven't, is in most movies we like, the characters arc, and there's a third act where there's catharsis and stuff. Not in the Big Lebowski. The third act is an existentialist third act, where they they that doesn't happen. So a lot of times people will be watching the movie and expect some kind of emotional catharsis in the end. It doesn't happen. 
um, nor is it intended to happen. Right, okay? right. And so if you're looking for that, you may be disappointed on first viewing. You go back because expectations, everything, on second viewing, third viewing, whatever, and you're not looking for that anymore, and all of a sudden you appreciate the scenes for what they are and all that. And um, so it's, it's, it's pretty ridiculous the way it's taken off. Yeah, and, 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 and it's a movement. Wall Street, for example, um, there's firms that you know that, that won't hire people unless they can quote Lebowski. Um, <laughs> it's it's a huge, huge sports. <laughs> Every they can't sport. quote Lebowski. <laughs> oh no, no, this, this is true. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I can tell you the source of the head of Sony told me on um, There's huge stuff with um, with sports people um, and others. Um, the point is, a lot of you can put on one scene of Lebowski and feel better. So that's what happens with a lot of teams and other people and things like that. You can just you don't have to watch the whole movie. You can put on a couple of scenes and, and you're gonna feel better, okay? Because you know the laughs and stuff like that. Um, and so it's it's um, as Francois Truffaut says in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And he's talking about you know why all the people are coming there to a place. He says it's a it's a phenomenon phenomenon sociologique. <laughs> so it's a sociological bizarre phenomenon. Yeah, which gets more and more ridiculous every day. If if you were to, if you do Google search on Lebowski, so you get every time Lebowski pops up, um, it's ridiculous. What you see every day of, of how it pops up in various places and things like that. So uh, to be involved with that whole thing. Um, there's another interesting thing about that. I have a picture of my daughter, Keely, who has a musical group called Gurun Wasser, which everybody should check out, G-R-U-N-W-A-S-S-E-R, info at grunwasser.com. Mm -hmm. And she, her second album is about to come out in September. She just released a video last week and another one coming out next week. Um, pretty extraordinary stuff. Not exactly my style, but but yeah, but people tend to like it a lot. And um, they do. Um, but Keely, well, I was going to tell this story. Um, Grunwasser. You were talking about Keely's band and yeah, Grunwasser. Before that, um, I was going to say... Um, What's interesting is I, I have a picture of Keely and Brad Pitt when she's like 14 and he's got his arm around her. We were at some event. We were doing a premiere of something. And, and um, actually, actually, Neil Young introducing Michael Moore's Paradise 9-11 at the Director's Guild. Right. And Brad is there and he's got his arm around Keely. And Keely's like, and I go, Keely, that's Brad Pitt with his arm around you. You might want to smile. You know I mean? You know, if you're like... And the point is, everybody's intimidated by movie stars. But I'm not a movie star, but even though I'm an icon, because people watch Lebowski with their friends. You know, like 20 friends or five friends watch it together. It's Absolutely. Like, and it's a friend thing. Yeah. So the dude is considered one of the friends. You know, it's a movie about friends. That's what those guys are at the bowling alley. Yeah. Anyway, you know, FYI, the dude never bowls in the Big Lebowski. Jeff Bridges does not ever throw down a bowl. Oh. I can be seen bowling there in the background, but, 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 um, so the difference with me is 
people at first do a little test to see if I'm uh, what kind of asshole I am or, or not, and and then after that it's a comfort level because I'm just one of the folks, you know, I'm not a movie star. Exactly, it's like. But I'm an icon, but I'm not a movie star. Okay, I'm just one of them. Exactly. You know, which is which is an interesting thing in life. Okay. And, well, and, wanting to know the original character. Yeah. The, uh, no, there's a lot of that too. And, and, that's, I mean, that's. The, and it opens any door I want, you know. I mean, it doesn't. CEOs, look. I mean, I haven't used played this card yet, but the head of the FCC, you know, Republican guy, favorite movie of all time. Now you think that guy will take my call if I call him up, you know, or, or anybody else? Of course they will, you know. And then the likes of Harrison Ford, I'll be at some event, I'll come running across and give me a hug. I just gotta hang with you and that kind of shit. You know, and so it's it's a it's kind of good for business because it can open any door too. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and, and uh, in that respect, so it's it's a it's a truly, from my own experience, a truly bizarre thing that gets more and more ridiculous every day. You know, you, is your phone on? It's not on. I I just okay. yeah I, I don't have do, it on. I was gonna do the Google search thing just to show you right now, but yeah, yeah the point the, the point is this whole yeah. Lebowski thing is 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 rather um, amazing and interesting and to be part of it, um, you know. But it's it really isn't me, so to speak. It is and it isn't, you know, because it's Joel and Ethan kind of doing their own thing, which is which they tend to do. Right, you know, um, using somewhat of a touchstone of me, but but then they. But go the off. characterizations in the film, Turturro's playing the the Jesus Quintana, you know these guys. I mean, it's just the group. Yeah, you know? I mean, look, one thing they did is they did a lot with Jeff. I spent time with Jeff, and you know, all the physical stuff, this kind of stuff. Incredible is me, okay, and 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 a lot of the physical stuff, and all. Jeff Bridges and I are born within two weeks of each other. Oh, really? Okay. I'm Northern California guy. He's Southern California, so I'm Giants, he's Dodgers, and all that stuff. With that said, our, our cultural experiences are almost identical. In other words, if the Beach Boys had a new song that came out or the Temptations, we heard it the same day. Or whatever was happening with JFK getting assassinated or this happening or that happened. We all experienced at the same time, the same age. Okay? I mean, you know, um, I guess I'm two weeks older than him, but... but um, and so... There's that kind of affinity too, with with Jeff and myself, who, who's, and the clothes in the movie are pretty. I mean, one of my daughters said, "Daddy, where did they get all your clothes?" And you know, well, Mary Zofris, the costume designer, came by and just went out and bought stuff similar. The clothes style stuff is me, except for the jelly shoes. That's Jeff Bridges added that in the movie. Joel and Ethan, who are editors and writers and directors, yes, very they know much where so. they're going. Yeah. So there's no, there's not a single line in there that's not in the script. Not a single line. I mean, they'll say Jeff or I or somebody else would go, you know, I go, come on. It's in, it's in the script, guys. That doesn't mean that, that Turturro, what he's doing to Jesus, doesn't add a lot of physicality to it. Oh, my God. You know, a yeah. phenomenal. I mean, that's one of the great entrance scenes of all time. Of all time. You know, as Frank Daniel, my mentor, would say, entrance is everything. What an entrance, you know? Yeah, licking the bowling ball. Yeah. 
<laughs> did you talk with Turturro about about his movie? The new one. Yeah. Going, I did. I didn't want... I, I, I talked with him There's about it. There's a thing it. on Google today about it, by the way. Yeah. I talked with him about it. It's It's been sort of not released yet, right? It's been two years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like it's in the Google thing today. Yeah. Because I... And he's for working a, a whole scene. He yeah. says it's a strong for women's thing. Yeah, because yeah. I, 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 I had a weird... I have a long relationship with John, and I... and. I worked with him on on multiple films going back to Mac all the way through to current day and 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 um I used to after I left Technicolor I owned a restaurant in the West Village for a while Where? called Alexandra 455 Hudson Street it's no longer there it was between Morton and Barrow um and um uh, a few blocks away from my old office at Technicolor and he was editing Going Places in the fall of 2016, which was the last year that I maintained the restaurant. He came to lunch with his editor every day um, and would would eat at my place. This is after I left Hector Keller. And so, I mean, we were just very close socially outside, but I also worked on his projects going back to Mac and intimately with Fading Gigolo and and uh, romance and cigarettes and all of his films, right? So, um, but in any case, I I was un you you have insight into, and I didn't want to dig in, but I have a sense, like you're saying, this is not uh, something that uh, is is it's been around for a bit, so I don't know all the backstory. Well, there was there's a yeah. Google story today on it. Okay, you look know, it up. Yeah, which is uh, all about it and what's going on. But because um, they have to, there. I guess there's a there is the changes that have to be made. Is that what it is, or yeah? Or it, it was. It was. It's hard to tell, but uh, yeah, there was some stuff. Interesting. Okay. In any case, that the 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 bowling character is the guy, right? I mean, he's in the. It's part of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Pedros. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah. It's, exactly. It's, yeah. It's well. It's dangerous. Ter- I mean, it's a cool thing that you wanted to do it, but it's dangerous territory to go into. Right. And stuff and. And Joel, I mean, I guess this has to every day is going to be a sequel. Joel and he's in our self-starters, and I got so much other stuff to do, you know, rather than just do a Lebowski thing again. Rather than do a sequel to the Lebowski, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it could happen or not happen, but, you know, they're kind of booked up for a while anyway with their own stuff. Right, of course. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, they're, they have they have so many things they can do that are already written or about to be written. Or, right. Stuff like that. So, you know, when you can only do a movie every year and a half or so. So um, that's what's going on with that. Yeah, the know. backlog of that. And so right now you've got this whole series of things that you're doing in this trans transmedia storytelling and you're and you're still repping films, right? Uh, and with Alex Snowy and with Blood, Alex Snow, yeah, yeah. So that has Blood, Sweat, and Honey. Yeah, yeah. Blood, Sweat, and Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let me make a general statement about where we are politically right now yeah. in the world. I'm extremely optimistic about where we are right now. The 60s and the 70s were a time of great cultural change and political change, but not systemic change. Okay? Right now, all systems are changing. Communication, education, banking, um, you know, financial systems, mm-hmm. transportation. These are, these are systemic changes that are either going to happen. Energy. They're going to happen. They can go this way, that way, 
but it's not going to be the same. Okay, we're not going to be using the same kind of phone three years from now. We're not going to be, you know, this, that, and the other. What do you think Brexit's all about and all this stuff, okay? You know, and new kinds of finance. So, which makes for a great opportunity. In other words, we can either do sustainable energy or we can get worse and do more damaging stuff that produces climate change and other kinds of things, okay? But it's an opportunity. And because, particularly because women are, seem to have a Mother Earth call to save the planet right now, in my mind, and particularly younger women, almost all the people I know in their 20s and their 30s, you know, every day, whether it's on their Instagram or something else, they're doing some kind of, you know, positive stuff along with their own Instagram pictures about, you know, we should be doing this to help the planet or this, or the other, or whether it's the plastic thing in the oceans or this, that, or the other. Yeah, no, I've seen so, a lot of interesting things about the use of plastics and yeah, and yeah. Uh, even to make garments and to re, re, exactly. reusable, right? And so people, so this is a, a phenomenal time in which people are going to, you know, not allow the earth to be destroyed, and and in my mind, and so that makes it very very exciting. Um, the the um, the the the, but it's also a very hurtful time. All the Trump stuff and stuff like that. You know, people are getting hurt every day in a big way. In the medical world, I mean, I just suffered from it. You know, because the communication breakdown in the medical world, um, and and my mother died because she went to a checkup, and two doctors' offices twenty yards apart. They failed to communicate and gave her a drug she didn't need. And ten days later, she's dead. Okay, you know, she would have kept living. Anyhow, so so I mean, it's one thing to have communication breakdowns in our industry. It's another thing when you're dealing with hospitals and they communicate life and life and death. You know, they screw up and, you know, somebody dies, you know, like my mother. Anyhow, um, anyhow but the point is that um, reg you know, regardless of all the damage that, that the kind of Trump stuff is going, which is really hurting a lot of people in a lot of ways, big time. Uh, and we know that. Number one, he, he's not going to, he'll be gone very shortly. I, I can promise you that. Like, he's not going to be, he's not going to win 2020. He, I don't even think he's going to run. Okay, I think he's going to pull before then and cut a deal. Okay, um, and cut a deal for himself, his daughter, and Jared. It was a tough deal to cut with Jared, but but you know he needs to cut that too because you know his daughter's with Jared. You know so so um, and I think he'll use a health thing to do it. Okay, but but I don't think uh, he's got much appetite for doing this. And I happen to know for various reasons that there's all kinds of stuff that they have on him that's really heavy, okay? So this guy's, you know, he's, he's not, there's no chance he's going to, um, you know, survive another election. By the way, a huge portion of the Trump supporters are people that can, can not, can be organized to not vote for Trump. This, they're not all there. Let me put it really simply. The people that voted for Obama but then voted for Trump, those people can come back again, okay? Um, you know, they just did it because Hillary represented, you know, inauthentic past in, in one respect, okay, as well as the good side of Hillary, but she was also 
represented, you know, global, whatever, and Wall Street and all that. And people got that, okay? Which is why all the young people went for Bernie, who 90% of them couldn't have told you who Bernie was two years before, okay? But he was authentic in their minds, you know, versus Hillary and stuff like that. So Trump will be gone, but in the meantime, what I'm advising people to do is if you're at work in your cubicle or wherever, um, I'm advising everybody two different things. One, it's a tough world out there. And reconstitute your thing and figure out who are five friends you can contact at any hour, day or night and say, hey, I need to talk to somebody or I need this. You might already have most of them, but figure out who they are and kind of make it official, so to speak. Like, you know, I mean, just... And secondly, in the world of the Internet and creativity and everything else, you may have something you want to do. You may have want to do a band. You may want to make cupcakes. You may want to do all kinds of things. In the world of Amazon and the Internet, pretty much with five or ten different people, you have a whole team that can do anything. The kind, I mean, if we talk about the film business, you know, one person may be a writer, but somebody else can direct, and somebody else can be the DP, and somebody else can edit. Put your team together and, and do it, you know? Create. And But that can be a zillion kinds of little businesses these days because of the Internet and Amazon and all that kind of stuff, so you don't, you know, you can be selling stuff, you know, Keeping your day job if you have to, but having your own world of something that you're doing that's going to benefit you, possibly financially, certainly creatively. And, 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 but I think people need two teams right now. I'm strongly right. If you don't have these two teams, you're going to wake up in the morning and go, wow, this is a little overwhelming and depressing. It's depressing to turn on the news. You know, um, every day. I mean, you know, somebody's getting shot. Somebody's getting, you know, the husband is killing the wife and the two kids. And it's like, you know, some, and so, and so, um, I think we need people to talk to or work with in that environment. And, and going to work in your cubicle can be rather depressing too because you're not necessarily using your DNA. You're not using your formal education as much as you could, and you're not using your informal education. You know, you're, you're like in second gear at work, you know, very often. Um, even if you're at a place like Google, you know, I happen to be in Venice, two blocks from Google Silicon Beach headquarters. There's Google people in my building, Google people, you know, at every restaurant you go to, and Google people. And, and even there, they they may not have the freedom they want, even though they're trying to foster that kind of stuff. By the way, Google, if you go there, and they're in the old Chiat Day building on Main Street, amongst other things, if you're having a meeting at Google with more than 15 people, you're having it at the Big Lebowski Theater, which holds 300 people, which has big pictures of all the characters up there. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I mean, every meeting that happens there with more than 15 people is in the Big Lebowski room or they're doing movie showings, or they're doing presentations. I love it. Or they're just eating at a meeting. You can't, there's no big enough room. So I'm going to figure out how we're going to work together and all that. Anyhow, but, um, 
So it's 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 a incredibly exciting and incredibly scary time. And and um, but it seems like what you're really directing is the idea of uh, of of standing up, not sitting down, uh, being a, a present, being alive, being upfront. Being, this is it. This is being, our life. This is our life, being, folks. Yeah, being uh, being the 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 person that you can be, rather than being on the receiving end of garbage that you're not uh, either pleased or displeased, but are are tuning out if what if in a sense right i mean yeah. because you you know there's the in it doesn't really in a sense it you know we the the world goes through cycles so and we're in a we're in one hell of a cycle right now aren't we we're in a heavy cycle right now right and and it's but but the probably the worst thing to do is to I mean, I think it's always the worst thing to do. The the the, the worst thing to do is to become a victim. It, 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 you have to become uh, you have to become more present and more and more alive under circumstances where there's uh, 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 things that are 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 sort of blatantly uh, uh, out of sync. And uh, let me give you other examples of, of good news. There's a group called Peace Jam. Peacejam.org. Right. Spelled P A C E J M one word dot org, that my friends Yvonne, um, uh, and, and, and you know Don started. Great story how they started, but it's with eighteen Nobel laureates, and we work with one point five million kids at risk. I'm talking about gun toting sixteen year olds, okay, drug dealing, gun toting sixteen year old type boys. Great cause. And and guess what? Out of 1.5 million of them, not a single one has been rearrested. We're batting 1,000. What, what's, be, what's better than that? What, what, why? Because they're mentored. They, we help get them a J-O-B, and they have a sense of purpose. They don't need to be shooting anybody anymore, okay? They have a reason to live, okay? Um, there have been three teenage suicides, which is way below the right? But none of them. Have 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 had, had had trouble and gone back to jail or anything close to that. So, in other words, you can make a difference. Absolutely. Uh, with individuals who male of the male variety who are violently prone, okay, out of frustration potentially. And you look at these people, you know, guy shooting up the place he worked the other day. You know, I mean. People are getting at the end of the rope when they don't have to be at the end of the rope, so right. to speak. Right, of course. And, 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 and I think there's ways we can all come together under these really challenging and, and often, on a daily basis, brutal times. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's brutal out there. And, and, but the good news is you see it every hour of every day of all the good things that are happening, whether it's CNN doing CNN heroes or, or, you know, where you see these kind of people or whether it's things you see in the Instagrams or things you see in Facebooks and other social media. Um, there's just a tremendous amount of great things happening. Yeah. And people taking, the other thing that's going on, and we're going to do this on our show, is people have solutionated all kinds of things. Right. You know, so, for example, a friend in Detroit has solar stuff going on within the city limits that he sells back 
to, you know, the utility companies, solar. So you don't have to be in Arizona. You can be in Detroit and be doing lots in the city. And deploy solar. And have solar, huge solar surplus, that not, not for this guy's roof. I'm telling you, he's got a solar farm going on, you know, in Detroit. You know, um, Germany, which has more cloud cover than Seattle and stuff like that at times, is, you know, unplugging entirely on, you know, all kinds of bad stuff energy-wise and doing good stuff, okay? So so all, so all what I'm trying to say is there's models everywhere of people who've got solutions. Very often down the block or in your neighborhood that people don't know about. So, so one of the things we'll do on the show, and people are doing anyway, is showing what's possible that other people can copy in their personal life, maybe their family, their relationships with friends, lovers, family, in their community, in their neighborhood, right on, uh, et cetera. And, and that's, most problems have been solutionated. So that's a term of my friend G.B. Hajim from, from uh, you know, the Big Island of Hawaii who did a really cool movie, Solutionated. Isn't solutionated, cool I like it. Isn't Solutionated a cool word there? That's great. Anyhow, so, 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 as Huxley would say, the truth lies at both extremes at once, often side by side. So that's what's, you know, that's the world we live in right now. But, you know, better to live life to the fullest. Absolutely. And not suffer when we don't have to suffer. No. Now, there was somebody talking about something on Instagram today. What did she say? Oh, she was talking about gateway drugs and stuff and saying, it was just one little paragraph. I don't think I took a shot of it, but, but it was about... And the person said, no, the, it's not the drugs that are the gateway thing. It's the abuse. It's the lack of proper parenting. It's, right. this, it's all those other things right. that were the gateway to, to these other things, which are basically people self-medicating, you know, because to deal with the pain of the past. Okay. And, and, and it's the American family has been fraught with all kinds of problems. You know, going back to the 50s where, you know, they were trying to turn everybody into, you know, automaton 50s type people and women do this and men do that and stuff. Well, there's a lot of numbing going on. Yeah. 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 And then, Lots and, of and then going all the way through now where you have all this crazy lack of role model family stuff and divorce rates ridiculously high. And, you know, and so it's, it's, it's not, there's not a lot of models for people even to see what it Well, it's, it's not only the divorce rates are high, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm myself a divorced individual and I think our, our, our children and their friends who also may have divorced parents, there's a generation coming out that are asking a lot of questions about marital union. And, and about the institution and about the way in which even the world uh, uh, and, and the government and the world around those who decide to, to become uh, uh, married uh, invades the personal lives of people, right? Because they've witnessed it in their own families. So people are rethinking the spousal unity in general, and not it's not a question of monogamy or any of that. It's a question of how people come together. 
you know there's yeah. uh and i and i don't think that and i don't think that all and it was that whole idea of like you know the traditions of when people make the decision right you know what age and my daughter's what 24 turning 25 my son's 21 they're young kids you know they're not no one's no one's in a rush right but but there's but there are along with what they've witnessed politically in the world around them like you've aptly described of the sort of surreal environment that we inhabit where there's a sort of a tremendous lack of care for really for communication which is what comes from the you know the the messaging that we receive right and then and then you know having to navigate uh uh also uh existing as a as a young person in this time where there is uh you know a little bit of chaos to be you know in your early 20s i would think i mean i mean i totally it's look, not I have, I have it's a, not it's not our I world i have a 24 year old daughter yeah, annabelle and my a 27 age. year old daughter there you Keely, go the, the, the kids similar the age watch it thing. yeah let me i want no absolutely let me just say one thing for filmmakers that i want to say because yeah please cause I, yeah i, I want to a little bit to, of advice let's yeah. wrap around that absolutely one thing filmmakers should do a lot of and this is what sundance is about stuff like that is continue to rewrite your script and get feedback. Okay, it's it's all about the rewrite. Absolutely. And then secondly, when your film is done, screen it and screen it and screen it again internally. When we used to do these test runs up in Seattle, when somebody, not test runs, test screenings, just, just a one-off research screening. Of course, audience test screenings, absolutely. Um, not, not the test runs, the screens. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a huge endeavor. But it would also come down to is you'd have the foreign person audience, but you'd have the, the the focus group, which usually had twenty people. Well, these days you could have twenty people over to your house with your big TV, and 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 show your movie and get phenomenal feedback, particularly from women, by the way, who have certain insights about what's going on in a film. That's always was my secret weapon up in Seattle. I had like thirty women who would just invite to these things and they. They make comments and then we translate them to marketing things, but but and using that as data. But yeah, continue before you submit to a film festival. Show your film internally and continue to change it four or five times. I mean, I can't tell you how many things Alex and I and Blood Sweat and Honey and other been over the years you see about they submitted to Sundance at Toronto, but they submitted too early. I mean, they, they hadn't tested the film and made some changes they easily could have made before they submitted, okay, or could have made. And so it, it, it bequeaths people to, to try to not only get the script together again and again, but also to test your film with 20 or 30 people, which you can easily do. Who have no skin in the game. And, 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 and or do or don't, but, but, but the point is, um, and by the way, cast and crew screenings are not the best because most people know what's going to happen. I mean, they, they've been part of the movie. There's no drama in there for them. They, they know, you know, what's what's about to happen. So, Absolutely. So it's, you know, I mean, you can use those. But cast and crew screenings will be the worst screenings ever had because of that. It only gets better with real audiences. Sure. Than cast and crew. Now, they'd be polite and they'll like it, but they're not as good as a genuine audience necessarily uh, because well then there's that other category they call friends and family of course which 
uh, is sort of the middle ground. Right, but, right. But yeah, it can but still be all right. Yeah, but that can still get you some information. Get you a lot of information right. because they don't know what's going to happen at least. That's right. Casting Voodoo, what's going to happen, okay, for the most part. Not necessarily. But, but so my big piece of advice is you can do your own Sundance Institute and Festival by doing this testing. Okay, that's what the Institute is all about. Okay? Of course, yeah. And and, the, and so, and then by the time you do submit, you know, at least you dealt with some of the things so people are not scratching their heads about something you've already s- solutionated, okay? So that's kind of my advice to filmmakers is to, is to really, um, you know, and by the way, we couldn't do this years ago because we were doing negatives and no, we were making we film. Were, yeah, we were. We, we didn't have the chance to make the changes at the last minute, and and so and you know, uh, and and make the nonlinear cuts that we can do today. And, and so, as that. you know full well, oh, yeah, we're, we're doing that. something in Seattle. We're doing yeah, you know, interlock and stuff like that, and negative stuff. Yeah. Now you know it's much easier. It's, you know, you know it's it's all you know one DCP or something like that, and it's not, not a big deal to make a new co- new new version version. And it's one, not two, a big three. deal to screen it. You know, absolutely not, and and, and at all. You know, instead of having to, you know, the audio and the print at the same time. So, so, so. Very important. I agree. The one thing I wanted to, I want, and I, I'd, I'd love to hear your insights on, just because we've now sort of covered so much of this ground of, of the process, and you are, are like certainly in a pioneering sense, um, uh, loving all that has, all of the changes that have happened within our business and you've lived through the same ones I have. But I I want to hear what you feel about cinema dis, cinema exhibition and the social experience of going to a theater and the impact of what we're now, the environment and the ecosystem of the m- movies and feature films, documentaries, narratives for... Uh, a, a theatrical audience outside of that which is studio product that gets forced into the multiplexes and shown to us as a blockbuster. But, Be a little more specific. Well, the theatrical business in general, showing movies in cinemas, the the idea that people are going to consume movies in theaters rather than well, consume well, at home. And, and does, in your mind, does that really make a difference? Does it really, is it really an issue? Is it any less social for people to see movies the way that they do at home on Netflix and then talk with their friends about well, it or when they're in theaters? There, there's a certain thing that happens in theaters, almost a religious experience when the lights go down and you're doing a communal thing together in a movie theater. Right. Where you're laughing together and... And even if you're not, and it's quiet, there's an emotional thing that's going on we can't quite define. That you can't happens, get up and go to the bathroom. That happens in that dark room and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, and so it's a it's a very powerful experience. On the other hand, a huge amount of the, the, the theatrical audience is young people going to, whether it's superhero movies or or, or things like that. And, and and not people who are not teenagers and, and, and other people. And so it's, there was just that, that many adult movies in theaters, so to speak. I mean, not that the superhero movies don't play to some adults too, of course they do. But, but, and so it's, 
you know, you go to the multiplex and it's not there. Um, I think I, I went to see over the weekend the Elton John movie. Okay. Oh, have you seen it? I have not seen it yet, no. Well, worth seeing because they do a pretty interesting job of of stepping out of, in the storytelling, they go very arty in terms of the way they they um, do various songs and various other things. It's not it's not a straight up thing. They they really get out there, okay? Right. Uh, and and the guy who plays them is very good. But Taron Egerton, yeah. But but it's a, it's just a, a very interesting experience about what this guy went through. Oh yeah, actually, and, Elton and, John is an iconic character. And and. Uh, I noticed his next tour, the last tour, the tickets are three hundred fifty dollars or something like that. You know? To go see him, you know. Anyhow, but but the point being that it's, you know, there's something great about the theatrical experience um, that's different. I just wanted to go see this documentary, Echoes in the Canyon, about uh, Laurel Canyon and the rock era and Jake Dillon, uh, who was involved in in uh, in sort of playing. A, Kind of an interviewer and also a producer with Tom yeah. Petty and yeah, I know. And, I got uh, to check that out. I was yeah, I he, just saw that on the internet. He presented it in New York at Angelica. Yeah, and then they created like a little band. It was kind of cool, the Echo and the Canyon band, because they wanted to play the music of the era. And Jake, of course, is you know the Wallflowers, great performer, and um, so they performed music after the after it? the screening. Yeah, uh, wow. Jake Dillon and and and, a, and an, an ensemble of people that he put together for that show. I don't know if it's the same every time, but you know. But it was the interviews were fantastic because you have you know Roger McGuinn and you have Tom Petty and you have and you have uh, Eric Clapton and you know and the, you know they 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 dive in Ringo Starr. They dive into a lot of great interviews uh, uh, and and talk about the music era that uh, that took place. That he wants to cover of the, of the, the mamas and the papas and 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 Laurel Canyon and what and what that that time period was and people who moved from the East Coast to the West Coast and you know the mamas and the papas song California Dreaming and you know and all of that and you know it's kind of it's a cool thing, kind of a great. It's nice to see a film like that get made and actually show at a theater <laughs> anyway because yeah, yeah. most people aren't going to consume it that way. Nor is it necessarily important that they do. But um, but like you're saying about Rocket Man or any of the films that are out, yeah, let's you know, I'm I'm interested uh, in seeing anyone out there that is laying down a bet on cinema exhibition, right? Because <laughs> the business, as we know, is not really uh, what it was. Let um, me say something about yeah. using cinema. Yeah. There was a film I was involved in um, called See What You Hear, something that Hillary did. It was about people who are deaf, mute people, and they followed three performers, a mime, I think comedian, and a heavy metal band that were right. totally deaf. Right. You see this film? I have not seen it. No. But what she figured out was that she could do college gigs and make a fair amount of money which are not music system to a special screening. What I'm advising... Which is the non-theatrical market. Yeah, which I'm advising quote, a lot of quote. people to do. Right. 
is do special event screenings with your movie. Don't necessarily think you need to do a theatrical run. Do an event in Portland with the right people for free that will um, get all kinds of people, which will help launch the ancillary stuff. Okay? But do event screens. Like a screening with other stuff happening, a speech, a, a concert. Yeah, or uh, even not. Even not. Exhibition, whatever. But but people you invite to a special screening for free that will get the word out, that will help your, your, your you know, your, you know. Influencing. Um, on, on whatever form it's going to come out on Hulu or Netflix or whatever they, as well. Um, but think in terms of those terms. And then you can combine it possibly with a college thing nearby, which aren't much exclusive, where you could actually pick up more money than you would if the film played for two weeks or three weeks, you know. In a theater. And did very well. As the producers, you wouldn't necessarily get that much at the end of the day, okay? Right on. So I'm suggesting that people consider with these films that are special, and that's what you went to at the Angelica thing. Effectively. Although it was at the, the beginning of a theatrical run, I just was uh, lucky enough to be there when uh, uh, when Jake came in at the beginning of that run to do a Q and A after the screening, and then to perform and 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 prior to that talk about what uh, motivated him and the and the director uh, to make the film. Yeah, which was lovely. But I mean, these are environments where that's possible. Right, first of all, and there are a certain amount of them. God, thank on, still around, right? But, um, but as you say, the non-theatrical, uh, the un, the less, the non, the not conventional theater, which would include universities, libraries, film societies, uh, museums, do all that stuff, and don't right. just think of oh, I want outdoor a theatrical screenings. Run. Yeah. Let's see. Let me put it another way: if you have a theatrical run for two or three weeks. And let's say X number of people come. Well, the one-off special screening might effectively reach more kinds of people that you wanted than that would. Okay, so think in terms of those in those terms. That if you want to do something in theaters, it's not necessarily a theatrical run. It's theatrical stuff in theaters. Right on. Events, whatever, where you invite people for free, but they're going to put the word of mouth out there. Okay, not to mention. When you do that, you can have the media see it with that audience at the same time. Right on. And and in most films or many films, they play better with an audience than they do without an audience. So given a choice of having a critic or a blogger see it at home on their computer or with an audience, there you go. And And that will then, you know, so that's my big suggestion of how you can use theatrical stuff in a way that may be more effective than a one or two week sold out run or close to it okay right in right because of... you because you make it you make it more uh, in a grassroots sense more viral and right? you're also picking the right kinds of people right you're so, curating yes and so and so you may be picking with a movie with segmented marketing of different kinds of audiences you may be picking people from each of those kind of audiences that'll get the word out to the people that you know, that they kind of represent. You know, exactly. exactly, exactly, so That's my, one of my big advices to filmmakers to think in those terms too. Yeah, absolutely. Don't just see a hit, no. 
No, use a theatrical experience, but it's not necessarily a run, which may be impo- very, very hard. Oh, yeah. Very hard. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know. Well, God, Jeff, what a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for well, thank, coming. Thank you. I want to say something. Thank you for, you know, we've crossed paths many a time, but I got to thank you for all the phenomenal work you've done over the years. Thank you. I appreciate Technicolor that. Technicolor and since then and, and everything else and been involved with so many great films. And, yeah. And helping people out and, and all that. And, and uh, you know, I, I just... Um, you know, we can make this the best of times for all. And if we don't, it will be the worst of times. <laughs> so it's kind of an easy choice, folks. Love it. Best of times are worst of times. You know, it's it's our call, you know. Um, and, and, you know, so we might as well just to the hell of it make it the best of times. So right. So the dude abides. The dude abides. On, what are we calling this podcast? Conversations with Charlie. The dude abides on Conversations with Charlie. Love that. Podcast City. Yeah, baby. Bringing it here to you. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Charlie, for everything. Thank you.